All the stories have been told Of kings in days of old But there's no England now All the wars that were won or lost Somehow don't seem to matter very much anymore All the lies we were told All the lives of the people running round Their castles are burned I see change, but inside We're the same as we ever were Welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. My name is Sean T. Collins. I'm a television critic, and I'm the author of Pain Don't Hurt, Meditations on Roadhouse. And joining me, as always, is my illustrious co-host, Gretchen Felker-Martin, film critic and horror author. My first novel, Manhunt, is out from Tor Nightfire, February 22nd, 2022. And today we are talking about a landmark episode in the history of television, I feel it's safe to say, University, from the third season of The Sopranos. And one thing that I kind of wanted to start with is in this episode, there's a secondary character named Caitlin who is Meadow Soprano's roommate at college. And she comes back from a screening of Todd Browning's Freaks. And she asks, why is other people's pain a source of amusement? And that came on that came so early in this episode that I was revisiting because I love it so much and it really brought me up short, you know? Like yeah. why is other people's pain a source of amusement? It's not that this episode is amusing, but it's definitely about other people's pain and it mines just solid gold from it. Yes, it uh, is. And yeah. you know, it's it's certainly not irrelevant the sopranos a show that has a protracted joke about shooting a guy in the foot (laughs) true true we laugh at a lot of pain on this show and i i think that's something that humanity has probably always done because what else are you supposed to do with misery yeah i think the reason that that line was included I mean, it's it's an interesting observation, and it makes sense for that character who's suffering sort of a slow motion breakdown over just being exposed to other people's pain. But this, I've always said, was the episode where The Sopranos became itself. And that's a, a construction that I'm stealing from people who said it about college, which is the first season episode with which this is obviously twinned, you know, college and university. Right. They're both meadow-centric episodes, at least in part. and. I have always felt like this is where David Chase dropped the hammer. And he was like, you you think this is funny? This is amusing? They're clowns to you? Shut the fuck up. That's how it's always felt to me. That it's just, these are not nice people, fun people to be around. They're awful. And if you're going to keep watching the show, you have to come to grips with the fact that you are watching awful people. Monsters. Yeah. And, and all the worse for their recognizable humanity. Mm-hmm. 
this episode really revolves around two central figures. One is Caitlin, and I'm borrowing from our friend Matt Zoller cites here by saying that she's she's the conscience of the episode. She is someone who is trying actively to make sense out of the pain she sees all around herself. And she's ill-equipped for this. She's a child. She's from the middle of nowhere and has been thrust into New York City and into contact with homelessness and extreme poverty and addiction for the first time in her life. And so everything sends her into hysterics. But she's trying. She's trying really hard to feel all of it and do the right thing. And on the other hand, you have Tracy, a dancer at the Bada Bing, whose limited self-awareness and intensely miserable life is sort of like the visceral counterpart to what's cerebral with Caitlin. Like we're watching two people trying to navigate a world of horrors from very different standpoints with very different results and extremely different safety nets around them. Yes. And, and they have another parallel, which is that both Tracy and Caitlin exist in tandem with a soprano. Caitlin has Meadow and her boyfriend, Noah sort of observing her behavior and commenting on her behavior and, and dealing with her as a person unhappily for the most part. Yeah. And Tracy has Tony who is the owner of the Bada Bing and effectively her employer and is also the boss of Ralph Cifaretto, who's her made man boyfriend or whatever you would call him. And in addition to the parallel drawn between Caitlin and Tracy, I think there's a parallel drawn between Meadow and Tony and how they both react or, or refuse to react to suffering in their midst. You know? Yes. That's very astute. I I had never really put that together for myself, but you're absolutely right because they're both in sort of a position of authority. I mean, for Meadow, it's, it's a little bit de facto, but for Tony, it's, it's very real. They have a lot of say and sway over the, the respective people who are suffering around them. Right. And they're both able to compartmentalize and to draw a line around themselves and to say, you know what? Nah, I, I don't want to deal with this right now. I'm pushing this off to the side. Yeah. And in Tony's case, that has disastrous consequences. In in Meadows' case, I don't even know what happens with I think it's fascinating that Meadow both loses her virginity and gets dumped in this episode. Yeah. Because the, the grounds on which she gets dumped are ridiculous. Like Meadow is kind of, she's the happy wanderer that Tony often has talked about in therapy in a way, you know, she's in college. She's enjoying it. She's in the big city. She loves it. She has this boyfriend who's sophisticated and whose dad is a high power and entertainment lawyer and all this stuff. And she's also defying her father because her, her boyfriend is black and he winds up telling her, that he's dumping her because she's too negative and she has this underlying <laughs> cynicism about the world. And it's like, who are you talking about? I know. 
it's just like it's so transparent that he's projecting. Yes, he just made it up and foisted it on to her and was like, goodbye. And, ugh, I, you know, it just because you also have this additional parallel between Meadow and Tracy, both of them are busy with like dental hygienics in this episode. Like she's yep. constantly being bugged by Carmela to go visit the dental hygienist. Tracy gets braces that she's loan sharked by Silvio Dante for and gets beaten up about it. And both of them wind up sort of discarded for, by men for really no reason, you know, just the, the men got they, irritated. Yeah. I mean, in, in Noah's case, it's so funny because it's, it's like cellophane transparent. He doesn't like the way that he feels when they're at dinner together with his father. Right. Like he, he suddenly feels that his girlfriend is tacky. <laughs> it's just like that is the kind of thing that people get thrown away for and depending yeah. on the context context that can be painful and humiliating or it can end your life you know those those two actions exist on a spectrum with one another mm -hmm. it's, it's both sort of a staunch refusal to consider a woman a person that's a great way to put it it's a great way to put it. I mean, Tracy winds up dead in the garbage. Yeah, literally, there's that that pan from her down to the culvert next to the bada bing that's just choked with trash. Yeah. And that's that's all she is to those men. Even No matter what sentimental moment Tony experiences there, he didn't do anything to stop it. Right. He's aware that she's being you know, taken advantage of by Silvio. He's aware of who Ralph Cifaretto is and, right. you know, says like bringing a child of Ralph Cifaretto in the world, you'd be doing it a favor if you had it aborted, you yeah. know, he, he has no illusions about Ralph Cifaretto for sure, but that doesn't stop anything from happening. You know, like he doesn't intervene on behalf of this woman or on behalf of her kid who exists out in the world someplace. We never see him. We learn, however, that she put cigarettes out on him, which I yeah. had forgotten, which was a real kick in the ass. That is that is one of the most scarring moments of the show for me, is, is the quiet desperation with which she says, I got help for that. Right. And then how the, the th whoever she's seeing for help with it, I guess the caseworker, says, oh, you know, I mean, this is her way of explaining it away. She's like, oh, that just has to do with how my mom used to hold my hand on the stove. Right. Right. It's like, Jesus Christ. Right. And, and these and are just. Later we learn that that's who has her kid. Oh my God. I hadn't even thought of that. He is with her mother. Fuck. She's, she's like connected dots, but they're floating out in an abyss. Right. Oh my God. That's a. See, the funny thing is that even insofar as as we talk, we're both saying things with other persons like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. This is not a subtle episode of television. No, absolutely uh, you know. not. It is extremely direct about its parallels. Yes. I mean, there's so many like match cuts, like Tracy walks down a hall towards a door and then you cut to Meadow going through a door. Right. Or um, Tracy lowers her head to give a blowjob to a cop and then... Kate, it cuts to Caitlin lifting up her head and 
there's the dental hygienist thing and the braces and it's just it, it goes on and on and on and on and on and in in various ways tracy's presence echoes through the rest of the show i mean there's oh, the yeah. moment when tony sees meadow carrying date nut bread and it, like clearly shakes him to his core that he has this realization like oh my god i let someone's meadow die mm-hmm even the death of the horse, Pyomai. She was a beautiful creature and you killed her for nothing. Bingo. Yep. And this show has always been good about kind of, as direct as it can be. And like, as I said, this is an extremely direct episode. Like he was really not letting anyone, it, he wanted to make it clear what he was doing in this episode. You there know? is no like, getting away from the right, hook right. that he is putting into you. But it's the kind of thing where it's the kind of show where once it makes a point, it expects the audience to have gotten the point. And so as it goes on, it can reference it in increasingly oblique and subtle ways. And just you're expected to get it, you know, it trusts the viewer. Yes. And I I think that. I mean, obviously, I'm in, in favor of a television show that does not consider what the dumbest worst people in the world will do with it. The Sopranos assumes that either you're smart enough to get it or you're not. And it's not its problem. Yeah. Um, But this is a very direct episode of television. And I think like Mad Men, David Chase does not have any interest in fooling you, but what he's very, very good at showing is a character who has sublimated something real into a sort of tangentially related emotional area or even totally unrelated emotional area. You know, it's like the way that Tony will repeat things he didn't understand in therapy in different contexts. Mm -hmm. When later in the series, he murders Ralph in a, a fit of rage after their racehorses is burned to death. Presumably by Ralph, although it's it's left ambiguous because Ralph dies. <laughs> um, part of that is repressed rage over Tracy. Yeah, one hundred percent. Piomai is a, an emotional proxy for her, and Tony. The show goes into detail about how, to Tony, children and animals are emotional proxies for things that he cannot let himself feel in his life because it would cause the total collapse of his professional persona. Yeah. And that's what you're seeing here is that this man is constantly experiencing things that would destroy a good human being. And so he has to choose not to take them into himself. And that's what's so fucking horrible about all of these people is that they will just stand by and let, let, women get beaten to death right in front of them. And any one of them could have stopped it. And the things that they are outraged about once, because Ralph does this out in the parking lot behind the Bing by himself and then comes in and he's bloody and everyone goes out to see what happened. And that's when the shit hits the fan. Now, mostly what they're upset about they're you know, Tony, I think cites disrespecting the Bing. As a as a casus belly, basically, you know, and then his other minions are upset at the way that Ralph talks to Tony, and then Ralph 
and some of the minions are upset at Tony for hitting a made guy because Tony punches Ralph. Right. And you're not supposed to do that. And so it's boiled down to Polly telling Tony, cocksucker was way out of line. And Tony goes, 20 years old, this girl. And Polly goes, that too. Yep. You know, it's incidental and to this. Know, I read a, sorry, I'm, I'm just interjecting here. Real sure. Quick. No, go ahead. I read an interview with Ariel Kylie who played Tracy and then for decades never acted again or, you know, over a decade anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to her, the original line in that scene was Tony, you know, like tearing up and angry saying that they had ruined a perfectly good piece of carpet. Wow. And it was Gandolfini who had the instinct that it, it might make the show unwatchable. It's smart. It is, but I think the original is better. Yeah, although, I mean, I can see you need Tony to operate at a slightly higher level than the rest of the guys to make the show work, you know? Yeah, you do. And I get why I get why he was like, no, you can't do that. Um, and at any rate, you know, w- what wound up happening is that you had three or four, depending on the account, of more seasons to go in which Tony can dig himself deeper and deeper and deeper. So you get there eventually with Tony, I think. Oh, absolutely. By the end of the show, he is, he's well through that territory. Right. And, and even in the moment, it does not detract from the episode. He makes it work and he, like, it's such a, it's such a gutting half ass, you know, like, ah, oh, 20 years old. Like it would have been what better if she was 30. Just 40. Right. Yeah. Right. He's, he's upset but that's as much of it as is ever going to see the light of day. You know, you don't often think of Tony Soprano as like a a point of view character or as an entryway, an entry point character. But I think he is in the sense that, yeah, he is in the sense that he has the same sentimentality about the mob that we've gotten from mob movies, you know, like the, the whole thing about how you don't hurt civilians and, the code quote unquote of the mafia, which is just like the mafia is like a candy apple of murder. Um, you know, just dipped in this caramel of sentimentality and self aggrandizement. Yeah. The way that I, the way that I heard a Florentine politician describe the mafia was that it's a social club of the laziest, stupidest people imaginable continuously telling each other how great they are. Yeah. You know, the the mafia is parasitic. It exists in the same way that scavengers exist, because there's excess and it can bleed that excess off to enrich itself. Right. It's a... Socially and morally, it's a complete nihilistic dead end. And 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 that's something... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and this is the episode that smashes your face against that and says, don't you dare forget it. These people exist in the way that they exist because they have decided to eat suffering. Yep. It's Garmin Bosia. Yeah, it is. They, they feed on human misery. I just, it just, it, this is the episode that just doesn't let you look away from that. I mean, I think it's in a lot of ways, it's really that simple. There's this, this one scene 
I would say that before this moment, even though we've seen him do violent things, Silvio is a pretty comedic presence. Mm-hmm. You know, he he does the impressions. He's got a funny, weird face because he's Steve Van Zant. He's got that fucking insane hair. Um, have you seen The Many Saints of Newark yet? No, I haven't. Okay, well, there's a, a spoiler for Silvio's hair that I want to make Spoiler for hair. <laughs> um, but there's this scene where we we watch him drag Tracy out of Ralph's little like bolt hole where the two of them have been drinking and getting high and watching movies. And he starts to slap her around when she mouths off at him. And he just says the most hateful shit imaginable to her. Like, you know, until you're paid up, your shaved twat belongs to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Suddenly, this funny guy is like, oh, right. He's a pimp. Yeah. And a a pimp, like a mobster, is a parasite who exists to steal other people's labor. Violently. Yeah. Because they are being pimped, I mean, quite literally. Like, to get into, you know, they have a whole recurring thing, actually, in this episode, where there's the back room where the high rollers come and... And, you know, you can get in there and make a lot of money for yourself, but the price is you pay $50 and a blowjob. Plus a blowjob to me later. To the to the idiot guy who is, like, the chief, I don't know what even he is. He's the chief bouncer at the Bing. He gets his eye put out by Ralphie with a chain. Yep. And he's um, one of the more sympathetic characters in the episode because he gets his eye put out with a chain by Ralph, who's obsessed with, the, with Gladiator. Gladiator. And in general, Georgie is probably the nicest guy at the Bing. Right. He's, you know, he's sort of a a hapless schmuck. Yeah. But we never see him hit anyone or even fight back when he's just endlessly, repeatedly beaten (laughs) (laughs) Um, to the point that eventually he leaves the show. Everyone needs like a wily coyote. You know what I mean? You need some character just just to get shit on over and over again. Yeah. It's true. Um, and even, you know, even there, it's so astute of Chase to be like, well, yeah, even this big teddy bear of a guy is exploiting these women. Yeah. And and forcing them to give him sexual favors so that they can earn a living. Also, like, how many fucking blowjobs is he getting? As they say in Reservoir Dogs, a lot. Yeah, fair enough that horrible scene with Silvio the whole time, Ralph is eating a pop tart and snickering through the window. Yeah. As he watches. And it's just like, there's no way to watch it and feel anything, but certainty that this woman is going to die and that no one is going to care. It's so viscerally repellent watching him laugh through the window as his ostensible, girlfriend i guess gets beaten by silvio to him yeah you know what that scene actually really reminds me of that shot in particular Mm. the babadook oh my gosh yes the the horrible shot of Of her through the window window yeah (sighs) yeah it's a very similar kind of revulsion yeah you're seeing something that has the shape of a human and is is human in all 
legal sense, but is otherwise totally unrecognizable. Right. It's, it's some sort of ghoul. And I think in, in this episode, it's so clear that you have this upper class of the main guys, right? And they have their separate from their mob lives. They have basically suburban lives, right? So, you know, they get together and they have dinner with everybody and it's nice. And, you know, Ralph's official girlfriend is Rosalie April. Am I getting the name right? Yep. Yeah. Um, Who's, you know, widow of the former boss of, of the family. And, you know, they have an, as far as she knows, a nice little life together, or as far as she's interested in learning a nice little life together. And, you know, there's her son and uh, Jackie Jr. And, and meanwhile, in Tony's life, there's all the, you know, there's just this basic stuff about, you know, needing Meadow to go to the dental hygienist and stuff. And, and it really makes clear that these people, they get where they are by sucking people dry. Yes. Underneath them. It's really vampiric. And I think in this episode, it's as clear as a bell that this is how it operates. And, you know, you can, you can expand that into a metaphor for a whole lot of things, as a matter of fact, about how life works in this country and in general. Yeah. Um, I mean, ultimately that's a lot of what's at the core of the show is is the sense that this is all a metaphor for the world we live in. Right. Um, one thing that really strikes me about this episode, because uh, I, I also rewatched it when we decided to cover it. You mentioned that scene where we see Tracy go down to give a blowjob. Am I correct in saying that that's, that's the same sequence in which we see her getting double teamed by Ralph and a, a police officer? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That part really got me, not just because it's, you know, grotesque and exploitative, but because it's, it adds this wonderful element. No one who is supposed to care about this woman gives a shit about her. Right. She could run screaming out into the street covered in blood. Who cares? Yeah. She just, you know, a, a cop just fucking raped her with his gun to her head. It's a real fuck 12 moment. Yeah. And good for this fucking show. On a show that is not shy about showing the police as scum. Yeah. I think a lot about, you know, something that really echoes from that is the way that the FBI later treats Adriana. Mm -hmm. They have such total contempt for her. Really, they have no one to blame but themselves for getting nothing out of her. All they had to do was sit down and talk to her like a person. Right. Literally like gossip with her a little bit and you'll get everything you need. But no, they strong arm her. They have, they ogle her from, from their observation van. They talk about how stupid she is and imitate her voice mm-hmm. in, in like a silly baby tone to her. She, to them, she's, she's nothing. And I know, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's, that's it. It's just like, there's this, this running theme in this show that no one in any position of authority gives a shit about women. Yeah. I think that's very much the case. 
except the women who who mean something to you personally and even then they only largely conditional right they they only receive consideration in as much as you want things from them right and even that is is often portrayed as onerous yep you know you think about tony when he has that disastrous fight with carmella and they they separate and he talks about how she sat at home and bitched to him for 20 years and the first thing she says is well who the fuck wanted it that way what these what these men really want from the women in their lives is for them to stop and start existing on command that's a good way to put it yeah they want a wife they can take out of the refrigerator like a beer. Who among us, fellas, right? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, I think th- this also is the ultimate as a father of daughters comma, episode of television that there mm-hmm. ever is, you know, because so much of the contrast that it's the, the core contrast that's setting up. And the reason Tony, I think, is so aggrieved by what happens to Tracy is because he sees Meadow in her, you know, they're the same, roughly the same age. And there's a sort of paternalistic need to care about that kind of person, you know, once she's in sufficient trouble, meaning when she's dead, you know, right. Um, now he, now he can safely be upset because something bad enough has happened. Right. Exactly. But, you know, he, I know that this came in for a lot of criticism, but I thought it was really spot on. In the final season, when Melfi decides to abandon Tony as a patient, it's because she reads in a book that sociopaths are often sentimental about children and animals. Yeah. And that's Tony. Like, <laughs> I, I think it would be, it would feel more facile if it weren't so obviously the case that that was true with him. You, you know, know, over and over and over again. As much as I think it's true, I think that Melfi drops him as a client because she's embarrassed. Well, yes. I mean, yes, absolutely. This is her ex post facto justification for right. something she wanted to do anyway, because she was getting she was getting ribbed by her friends. Because they were they were making fun of her. Yeah. There's a wonderful moment. Melfi is such a great picture of American liberalism. Mm-hmm. And what I always come back to is this moment in one of the series, other big controversial episodes, employee of the month in which Dr. Melfi is raped. And then for the rest of the episode contends with the moral question of whether or not to tell Tony about it and have the guy crushed. You know, she knows that with one word, she can end this man's life and feel safe again. Mm -hmm. Maybe. And I've always heard people talk about how, it's a moral victory at the end when she decides not to, but like everything Dr. Melfi takes a stance on, she half asses it completely because in the same breath that she says, there's nothing she wants to tell Tony just a second before that she prevents him from moving on to behavioral modification therapy. She wants him as a security blanket, even as she tells herself that she's good because she won't have him murder someone. I mean, she, 
erupts in full panic when he says he's ready to move on and tells him no. She needs to have the murderer in the back pocket just yes. so she can feel like a good person for not pulling it out of the back pocket. Yes. She needs to have a gun under her pillow. Yeah. Which is, you know, yet again, there's a line that Dr. Elliot Kupferberg uses in this show. Or no, it's actually, it's Dr. Melfi's ex-husband, Richard LaPena, another mm-hmm. ridiculous man, who tells her that she's living in a moral never-never land with Tony. And that's like the defining condition of the Sopranos is people who exist in the midst of these really bloody, grisly, terrible situations and just keep rationalizing to themselves and keep coming to these half-assed accommodations that make everything worse for everyone but them. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, in, in a way the whole show is no one stepping in for Tracy and no one taking Caitlin seriously. I got to say the Caitlin thing I found really affecting in this rewatch that I did before the, before we recorded this. Yeah. Same. Um, She's, she's a character who I I found kind of flatly obnoxious when I was younger. Um, mm -hmm. Cause I first watched the Sopranos over a decade ago and you know, I didn't have a lot of empathy for her the last three or four times that I've rewatched it, she's grown on me more and more. And she, it's a really moving performance. She's very unaffected and very, um, she is such a recognizable strain of someone who is self-obsessed, but through the lens of what people like to call empathy, where she just will not stop feeling what's going on around her and then making it all about herself. Right. Which is extremely fascinating because everyone around her acts as though that's completely insane. And I think what the show would like us to realize is that many of us do this on a daily basis. You know, who is, who is going out and looking for homeless people to give money to day after day, who is spending their time sitting and contemplating the suffering of the world. Does your depression ever manifest itself that way? Where you just fixate on something that's wrong with the world and just can't shake it? It has in the past. Um, when I'm sorry to get, if I'm getting too personal, that's perfect. No, not, not at all. When Julia, your partner, my friend, when she and I were both a lot sicker, we used to just like send each other the most miserable things we could find and stare at it and cry about it. Oh, the two of you. I know, the Statler and Waldorf of clinical depression. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it definitely used to be a part of my life and a part of the way that I dealt with depression. And I would say that when I experience symptoms now and they are, they are milder, it tends to be more numbness and anhedonia. It's, it's sort of like what's happening is that I can't contend with the world. So I start to pretend the world doesn't exist, which Mm. means I stop experiencing pleasure just as I stop experiencing acute misery 
because I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm human, you know, I can only look at so many articles about climate change and police brutality and wars overseas and the callous, monstrous indifference of every level of American government before my brain starts to feel like it's going to spin up to 10,000 RPM and explode. Yeah. How about you? When your depression manifests, is that how it comes? Yeah, I would say so. I would say mostly actually at this point. Yeah. That's, that's been my impression to the extent where let's get real here as Dr. Phil would like to say, (laughs) um, my therapist and my psychiatrist are always trying to put me in the hospital and I'm always just like, the hospital's not going to cure like the shitty world, you know, like I'll be, I'll be in the hospital. I'll be out of the hospital. What the fuck difference does it make? The world isn't going to get any better because I'm in the hospital. Like it just, right. I don't know. I really relate to her fucking pulling her hair out. Yeah. I I really relate to that a lot. It's very relatable. And what I'm about to say, feel free to cut. The point of going to the hospital is not to change the world. It's to give you more ability to deal with the world. I know. No, you do know that. So don't be facile. I'd love to outthink myself out of what I think about it. You know what I'm saying? Like You do. I, and I, I love you. And I would love to stop seeing this happen to you. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like, you know, let's, I don't mind getting into this because here's the thing about me and the Sopranos as, as best I can. T- I mean, I've, I've seen individual episodes more than once, but the first time I watched the Sopranos, you know, I had graduated college in 2000 and the show started in 99. And I probably started watching in 2001 when season three was running and I was catching up with it on DVDs from Blockbuster. And, and then, um, I didn't get HBO, but a friend of mine's parents did. So what I would do is every Sunday night, I would drive to my friend's parents' house about a half an hour away from where I lived. They would tape it for me and I would take the tape from them and I would watch it. It was a really elaborate procedure. And one of the things I noticed as I was binging the first two and a half seasons is that I felt like a worse person afterwards. I felt nastier and more cynical and more sarcastic and meaner to people. And it was not a pleasant feeling to feel that way, you know? And I was like, this is 100% because that's how Tony Soprano deals with people without question to me. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're about to, I think, embark on a rewatch. It should be a fun cause it's a terrific show, but I've put it off because I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to feel worse than I already do. You know, like I don't, I'm, I'm not convinced that the show is good for me because it's so biting. And so, I mean, we've talked about this on this podcast before, how a lot of the canonical and even semi-canonical great shows of the prestige television era are about people's capacity to, to change or people's capacity to do the right thing. And the the incentives and disincentives for doing the right thing, you know, and I think The Sopranos more than any other show 
has a very dark outlook on on whether that's possible. You know, I think I think it's darker than Deadwood. I think it's darker than The Wire. I think in a lot sure. of ways, it's, I'm sorry. I said for sure. Yeah, I think it's darker than even Boardwalk Empire, which I think is is that and Mad Men are its real spiritual heirs. Um, yeah, I I would I would put it on a a bleakness scale with Boardwalk Empire. Sure, but at least in Boardwalk Empire, Boardwalk Empire in large part is about people getting what's coming to them. You yeah. know, and that's less true of The Sopranos. Far less true. Yeah. I mean, that's the core thing about The Sopranos and the finale of The Sopranos. is like, you don't know if he gets what's coming to him. You never know. You don't get to know. Right. And if it did happen, you already know that it would it would just be stupid, senseless misery. Right. It would just, you know, he would be murdered in front of his family. He would all be horribly traumatized. He would learn fucking nothing about their dad and and what to what to take from their dad's life and death. Because it would ruin their lives completely. Exactly. More exactly. than they've already been ruined. To say nothing of everybody else in the fucking restaurant. Right. You know? Like, right. you, you get that a little bit when, uh, what's his face, the haircut gets killed. Jerry Torciano. They, yeah, you know, it's like, the, the, they killed the guy and I'm not sad about it, but like, they did it in front of a whole restaurant full of people. That's fucked. You know? I I don't know. I, I To me... Uh, the Sopranos is a real live wire that I'm hesitant about handling and have been since I first watched it 20 years ago. That's really understandable. Um, after I first watched it, I, I did go a few years before revisiting it. And, you know, what you said earlier about noticing more cynicism, more sarcasm, more sort of an, an impulse to sneer at the world. I noticed that too when I watched it. It it made me angry and it made me self-critical or rather that's how I reacted to it. Mm-hmm. Because really the whole thesis of the show and certainly the thesis of university is that if you're going to wear clothes, you have to acknowledge sweatshops exist. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. You are going to have to look at this misery. And that ultimately is what separates The Sopranos from basically every other piece of mob fiction before it, excepting Casino. Casino. Yeah. Is not just that everyone involved in the mob is unhappy, but that it is a constant fucking source of human suffering. That is 100% avoidable and unnecessary. All of this misery exists to make a product, which is some shitty idiots living in crappy McMansions and abusing their families. Yep. Nothing good comes out of it. Nothing. Yeah. You know, I think often in the final episode, when Meadow says she's going to go into law to defend victims of Italian American discrimination. And Tony's like, Tony's like, well, <laughs> yeah. Cause he knows it's bullshit. You know, he knows that it was a ginned up line to, you know, it, it, it was a way to 
wriggle out of the spotlight that was put on the mafia. Right. I mean, it's, it's what his own mother said to him when he saw his father get arrested for the first time. Yeah. Nothing. They just pick on Italians. <laughs> <laughs> and what was... And, yeah, I mean, he... he seeing him react with, with kind of like, eh, is really funny. Oh, I laughed so hard when that, uh, like, cause he, he had put this idea in her mind, I think in college, the episode. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. And it blossomed forth into this flower of bullshit in the finale of the show. Like, right. I mean, his, his, again, again, his half-assing with her because he admits that he is involved in some kind of organized crime, but he walks it back. He steps it back. And throughout the series, Meadow has to continually renegotiate her relationship to not just her father, but what her father represents. And ultimately what she decides he represents is being oppressed. <laughs> you know, there's there's the this is a really undersung Sopranos joke, but when her boyfriend Finn gets freaked out by being taken to the back of Satrials to basically rat Vito out for being gay. And he tells Meadow how scary it was and how he's afraid that something bad is going to happen to Vito. And she just gives him the most self-righteous, repugnant line, which is that <laughs> they bring with them certain methods of conflict management, which origi <laughs> originate in the 18th century of the Mezzogiorno, where all higher authority was corrupt. <sighs> Outstanding. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's right up there with Janice saying, ah, Bartleby, ah, humanity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. That all the people who are tangentially or intimately connected with Tony have this sort of razor's edge delusion built into their life that is the same as Tony's inability or unwillingness to be honest about the suffering around him, to, to feel the emotions that he is having about things like Tracy's death. Meadow knows that her father killed Jackie Jr. Mm -hmm. She knows it. She comes very close to saying it several times. And ultimately the only way she can live with it is to enter denial and start yeah. to build increasingly elaborate bullshit justifications. She tells herself stories that he didn't even tell her. Yep. And, and really that's, that's the end game of, of their parallel in university that Tony and Meadow both live in worlds of elaborately constructed and, and mutually supportive fictions that allow them to exist. I don't know what I have after that. Fuck. It's the greatest episode of television ever made. It is. Well, to me, it's the second, but I know, I know you and your twin Peaks season eight. <laughs> <laughs> Which to me is merely the second or third greatest piece of television ever made. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough.
Yeah, this is, I, I'm, I don't know. I really wanted to do this episode because I think this is an important thing to stress about this show and about television in general and, and the history, the future, the future of television was decided by this episode, I feel. Yes, you know, absolutely. Uh, certainly of quality television. There is at, there is no Game of Thrones without this episode. No, God, no. Nope. And there's certainly no Boardwalk Empire, which is a show about people being scum. Yeah. You couldn't I, have I, made it. You couldn't have made it. No, I really... It's a landmark, and I've always... I've, I felt it was obvious from the first, and I still... I don't understand... I don't know, not to make this a thing about other people. I don't really give a shit, but like... I like college. It's a perfectly fun episode of the Sopranos, but like this is a different, a whole different beast. And it's what the whole rest of the show followed from. It, it's you know? hydrogen bombs and hand grenades to put the, the two next to each other. University is the violent rebirth of prestige television as yes. something much richer and much more powerful and much more willing to look at its viewer and say fuck you and fuck the world you live in and fuck the life you lead it's all a bunch of self-serving lies yeah because honestly i think college college makes sense on the network that was also airing oz and sex in the city you know and it's not a slight against either of those shows um i will say that i finally watched sex in the city and it's basically unwatchable eh. it's just unbelievably bad it was a thing you know it was a thing and um and the sopranos was a thing and i feel like this was the episode where it became more than a thing yes it was where it became the motherfucking sopranos all right how do we feel about that we're gonna wrap it up here that feels like the cut all right well, thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been Cut to Black, an episode that we were anxiously awaiting for quite some time. I've been Shanti Collins. And I've been Gretchen Felker-Martin. And we'll continue to be after we wrap. And we'll see you next time.